Thank you, Michael, very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. The, uh, the video of Innocent there in Malawi, I think, is a marvellous illustration, isn't it, of our mission to be torchbearers together for Africa. So uh, it is with that in mind that I greet you as fellow torchbearers this morning and ask you to keep that in mind as we look at this rather um, challenging passage. Uh, Anyway, we'll get to that in a moment. A number of you have asked, where are the yellow sheets this morning? Uh, I'm glad that you missed them. Um, Just to let you know that uh, this week we're going to, on Wednesday evening, have uh, uh, something slightly different. We're going to have a little competition on, uh, or quiz if you like, on Romans 1 to 11, because we began Romans two years ago, and some of us have forgotten what was in the first chapter. So we need to go back and revise it. It'll be fun. And I look forward to seeing you at our home at the normal time, 7.30 on Wednesday. Good. Well, have your Bible open, please. And there is an outline, as usual, in the bulletin. And uh, I'm going to pray. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens can't contain you. And yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell amongst men, that you would come and dwell amongst us this morning by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we try to read your Word that your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we might enjoy communion with you as dearly loved children enjoying communion with their Father. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, imagine for a moment that you're on an aircraft. Um, It's cruising along at 30,000 feet. It's been a fairly smooth and uneventful flight so far. But then suddenly there's an announcement. Uh, A voice says, this is your captain speaking. Uh, I'm actually not on the aircraft at the moment because this is a historic moment in the history of aviation. For the first time in history, this is a fully automated flight. There's no pilot on board. But please be reassured that absolutely nothing can go wrong. Click. Nothing can go wrong. Click. Nothing can go wrong. Now, I suppose that could perhaps become a catchphrase for our ministry team meetings on Monday mornings. Uh, Before we start anything new, especially if there's technology involved, somebody ought to say, nothing can go wrong. Because however carefully we might prepare, from time to time there is an unforeseen hitch. Uh, an unplanned power cut, the website crashes, 
we can't send out the emails. Well, this morning, people are sick. The truth is, of course, things can go wrong. That's true for all of us individually. We have uh, great plans for the things we're going to do with our lives, but so often things just seem to take us off course. It's true for nations, because even the greatest nations often find their agenda is taken off course by circumstances beyond their control, because things can go wrong. So sometimes it does feel, doesn't it, like we're on an, uh, a pilotless aircraft veering this way and that and we've got no control over the direction our lives are taking. Many people think it's rather like that with the universe. Uh, that, of course, is what the atheist believes, that the universe is a pilotless aircraft heading in no particular direction, just sort of weaving around aimlessly and inevitably at some point is going to crash. But the Bible says, no, it's not like that at all. There is a God, and he is a God of awesome power. He's sovereign over everything, he's always in absolute control, Ultimately, nothing can go wrong. And yet sometimes we, we as Christians look at what's happening in the world around us and we find ourselves saying, well, yes, I do believe in God, but right at the moment it doesn't actually look like God really is in control. Now that's what many Christians in the first century must have thought as they watched what was happening right before their eyes. The Apostle Paul, a Jew, gets converted. He starts telling the world about Jesus, starting with his own people, the Jews. But what happens? Most of them don't want to know. They reject the message. And it's a huge question mark. Is God really in control? And that, of course, is the question Paul's addressing in Romans chapters 9 through 11. He says, yes, contrary to what you might think, God really is in control. He can be trusted. He's got a perfect plan. And ultimately, nothing can go wrong. Well, this morning we're looking at the last section of these remarkable chapters. We'll continue in chapter 12 next week. But there's nothing quite like Romans 9 to 11 in the rest of the New Testament. And there are things here that are hard to understand. I know that over the last couple of weeks, some of us have found Paul's teaching a bit of an uphill climb. Well, this morning we've reached the top. Uh, And in our passage this morning, Paul is, as it were, giving us an overview of God's plan of salvation from the top of the mountain. And he shows us God's plan from three different angles. First, in verses 25 to 27, he shows us the conclusion of God's plan. All Israel will be saved. Then in verses 28 to 32, he gives us the goal of God's plan. All people 
may receive mercy. And then in verses 33 to 36, the the response to God's plan, all glory goes to God. And then at the end, we're going to consider what difference these tremendous realities should make to our lives this week. So first of all then, verses 25 to 27, the conclusion of God's plan. All Israel will be saved. Now if you were here last week, you'll remember that in the previous section, Paul has introduced an illustration from the world of farming. He imagines two olive trees. Uh, On the one hand, there's a cultivated olive tree, and on the other hand, there's a wild olive tree. The cultivated tree represents Israel, planted and nurtured by God over many generations. But when the Messiah, promised to them by God, comes along, they reject him. Now, at that point, the big surprise is that God doesn't simply take out a chainsaw and cut down the cultivated tree and turn all his attention onto the wild olive tree. We might expect him to do that. The wild olive tree, of course, represents the Gentiles, and that means, of course, us gathered here this morning. But God doesn't cut down that cultivated tree. He's still focused on it. But what he does is he grafts in from outside wild shoots from the wild olive tree and he puts them into that cultivated tree. Now sadly, some of the branches of that cultivated tree have been chopped off, but God hasn't finished with them either. And if God can graft in branches from outside, people like us, surely it's going to be much easier for him to graft back in the natural branches whenever he decides to do that. And God is committed to doing it. Now verse 25 in our passage, have a look at it, verse 25 clarifies the point. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Now, it seems to me that that is the purpose of this little section. Paul is concerned that Gentile Christians might become rather proud, as if they might be thinking, well, you know, God's finished with the Jews now, and we're the people of God. God's only interested in us. And Paul is, as it were, putting those Gentile Christians in their place and he's saying, don't forget, you're a weed. You're an alien species. And God has graciously put you where you don't belong. And he hasn't cut down that old tree. Some branches have been temporarily cut off, but he's going to graft them back in again. So don't you dare be conceited. There's no reason for that whatsoever. And then he continues in verse 25, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. 
Now God hasn't finished with the Jewish tree. True, the majority have been hardened. They can't see the truth about the Lord Jesus. But their hardening is not total. There is a remnant that does believe. Paul is one of them. And the hardening is not final. It's partial. It's temporary. It's until the full number of Gentiles have come in. Now this, if you remember, is the circle of blessing that we were talking about last week. And the circle begins with the hardening of the majority of Jews. And the result is that by God's design, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Many of them believe. And then you remember Paul spoke about envy. Not not as a sinful thing, but rather Paul is expecting that Jewish people will see what Gentile believers are enjoying in Christ and they'll think to themselves, we're missing out. We want what they've got. And Paul's anticipating that that envy will bring many, many Jewish people to faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, all of that is the mystery that Paul is talking about in verse 25. Previously, it was hidden, but now it's been revealed to Paul by God that this is the way that many Jews are going to come to Christ when they see what God is doing amongst the Gentile people. And so, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And the $64,000 question is, what on earth does that mean? Over the years, there's been lots of debate about it. What does Paul mean by Israel? Many people say that uh, by Israel, Paul is simply referring to the church. That is, uh, all those who end up believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And it's true to say that elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says that all who've come to put their trust in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are the spiritual children of Abraham. In fact, he says that explicitly in Romans chapter 4. He says that all Christians are in the line of Abraham by faith. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul speaks about the church as the Israel of God. And what he means is that we Gentile Christians have inherited the promises that were first given to Israel. And so now we, together with believing Jews, are the Israel of God. The problem is that in Romans chapter 11, the word Israel always refers to Jews only as distinct from Gentiles. Now, that's obviously the meaning in verse 25, if you'd like to look at it, where Paul spoke about Israel experiencing a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles have come in. Now, it seems to me highly unlikely that in the very next verse, he suddenly changed his mind and that the word Israel is referring 
to the church. Can't be, it can't be that, can it? No, he's referring to Jews. But what about that word, all? All Israel will be saved. Well, the word all there does not mean all Jewish people without exception. In Hebrew literature, the phrase all Israel is often used to refer to the nation as a whole without necessarily meaning every single individual. And so earlier, uh, Paul speaks about Israel rejecting the gospel. But he also speaks about a believing remnant. So clearly it wasn't every single individual in Israel that rejected the gospel. It was a large majority, but not all of them. And so here you see Paul can talk about all Israel being saved without meaning that absolutely every single individual will be saved, every single individual Jew. No, no. What he's doing is he's talking about all believing Israelites in every generation from Abraham onwards with a massive proportion turning to Christ before the end of time after the full number of Gentiles has come in. So God is looking forward to all Israel being saved. And notice from the text that Paul says this isn't a new plan because verse 26, quoting from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. That might seem a very long way off to us now. Uh, Praise God, there are Jewish people coming to faith Today, yesterday afternoon, I was at the opening of the Hope Centre at George Whitfield College and the presiding bishop of Reach SA is a Jew, isn't he? A converted Jew. So, there are Jewish people coming to faith today. But it seems a long way off before we're going to be able to say all Israel, the bulk, the vast majority, has been saved but it is something we must pray for and it is something we must expect because it is the conclusion of God's plan. All Israel will be saved. Then secondly, Paul in verses 28 to 32 gives us the goal of God's plan. That all, (coughs) excuse me, that all people (coughs) may receive mercy. Now, I don't know how you personally have found Paul's teaching in Romans chapters 9 through 11. I think in places it has been hard to understand. Uh, My brain has certainly been aching as I've tried to understand the main message. And there are places where even the experts can't seem to agree with one another, which I have to say is rather tiresome if you're preparing the sermon. And even in those places where we can understand what Paul is saying, it can sometimes be rather hard to accept, not least his very strong teaching on God's sovereignty. That is both glorious, I think, and unsettling 
at the same time, that God chooses some people and not others, that he hardens some people and not others. And we've also seen, haven't we, from chapter 10, that God's sovereignty does not diminish one jot human responsibility. And so we scratch our heads again and we say, well, how on earth is it possible that God is sovereign and yet we are also responsible for our choices and for our actions? I think if we were reading these chapters in a very superficial way, and we're not doing that, but if we were, we might get the impression that God is really rather unpredictable, that he keeps changing his mind, that one minute he's kind and gracious and loving, and the next minute he's stern and condemning. But friends, if we think like that, we have completely misread Paul. Because... The overriding emphasis in these chapters is on God's mercy. In our first study, I think I mentioned that Martin Luther spoke about God's judgment as the work of his left hand, meaning that judgment doesn't come naturally to God. His natural impulse is to be merciful. And even when he's hardening the hearts of some, he does it in such a way that it extends his mercy to others. Now, friends, that is the main point in this little section we're looking at this morning. Come with me to verse 30. Just as you, that is, you Gentiles, just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too, meaning the Jews, they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now you might be thinking, well does that mean that absolutely everybody's going to get saved at the end of time? No, it doesn't. Because Paul is not there talking about all people without exception. No, no, he's talking about all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile. In other words, Everyone, all people, may receive the mercy of God if they turn and put their trust in Christ. And and you see, there's a big question that lies behind this section of Romans 11. It is, how do you get right with God? It's the question we began to ask a couple of weeks ago. And the point is that no matter what religion you turn to, you will always find that the answer to that question, how do you get right with God, begins with the same three letters. M-E-R. So many people will say, well, you get right with God on the basis of M-E-R. I-T. In other words, 
by what you do. So, imagine the end of the academic year at college. Uh, There's the prize-giving ceremony. And uh, suppose only those people who've been awarded a prize are allowed to turn up. No no losers are allowed in. And uh, at the end of the ceremony, uh, you line up and you have your photograph taken with somebody terribly important. And uh, everyone is talking to people in the line-up, asking, well, why are you here? Oh, well, uh, I I won the Greek prize. Uh, Or, no, I I won the church history prize. Many people think heaven is going to be like that. Why are you here? Well, I'm here because, of course, I gave lots of money to charity. Uh, Or I'm here because, well, I've, I've been terribly religious, you know. I go to the church, the mosque, the temple every week have done for 40 years. Uh, Or, you know, I'm terribly respectable. Ask all my friends. That's why I'm here. But the Bible says that no one in heaven will be there on the basis of merit. Nobody. God has arranged things in such a way that there is no possibility that anyone in heaven can possibly think that they're there on the basis of merit. Why is that? Well, it's because of verse 32, probably the most important verse in this little section. God has bound all men over to disobedience. And one of the results of the tragic rejection of the gospel by the Jews in the first century is that the Jews also must realise that they are disobedient and that they too can only receive anything from God on the basis of mercy. Now that is a shock. It was certainly a shock to the Jews in the first century. And I think if people understand this, it's a tremendous shock to countless multitudes of people today. Especially if they think they're respectable. See, none of us can establish a claim before Almighty God by virtue of our birth, our beauty, our brains, or our behaviour. None of those things will get you in. It's very humbling. It's very humbling to have to admit before God that when it comes to earning a place in heaven, I'm a complete failure. It's especially hard, isn't it, for anybody who's enjoyed a measure of success in life. Equally, it's very humbling for us to have to admit before God, I'm a rebel. Especially if you've been used throughout your life to being thought of as good. Always good at school, always good at the university, model citizen today. But the reality is, I'm a failure, I'm a rebel, and so are you. But you see, the good news is God has bound all men and women over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. M-E-R-C-Y. Mercy offered to all races, all personalities, all backgrounds, all the people who go to church, all the people who don't go to church, 
Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. Everyone, everyone may receive God's mercy through the death of the Lord Jesus who's taken the punishment they deserve so they can be forgiven. All they have to do is ask God to give it to them but of course the tragedy is that most people are far too proud to ask. So the goal of God's plan is that all people may receive mercy. What about the response to God's plan in verses 33 to 36? All glory goes to God. I started today by suggesting that we could think of chapters 9 to 11 rather like an uphill climb, perhaps climbing up Table Mountain. It's very hard work. Most of the time, you're looking down at the path because it is such hard work and you're huffing and puffing and thinking about just the next few steps. But every now and again, you need to stop and pause and look around and admire the view. And I think in these last verses of chapter 11, it's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, well, look, now that we've reached the summit of my teaching on the Gospel, let's pause and let's look around. Let's admire the amazing view. And let's humbly bow down and worship the great God I've been telling you about. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. What he's saying is you can never think your way to God. I think it's really important to say that, especially uh, for those of you at college. You will never be able to think your way to God. We like to think that we're so clever. Actually, we're not. We'll never be able to work God out. His judgments, his paths, they are unsearchable. They're beyond tracing out. In our sinful minds, we like to think that we're at the centre of things and that our reason is the final judge of what's true and what isn't true and that we're free to decide what we'll accept and what we'll reject. So, uh, when we read that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, well, we say in the quietness of our own hearts, well, I can just about stomach that, but Jesus, won't you please stop there? Please don't say, no one comes to the Father except through me. We might say it very politely, perhaps rather like a PR consultant. Uh, in our minds, we might say to Jesus something like this. Um, I really wouldn't say it like that if I was you. Uh, because you know, people don't like that sort of thing these days. It's far too exclusive. The media will be all over you. And then we read on in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? In other words, how dare you presume to give advice to Almighty God? 
And then again, we, we can so easily think that we're doing God a favour if we believe in him or worship him or pray. And uh, I think sometimes we treat him a bit like the family dog. You know, he's a bit ancient now. now he used to be rather fun when he was a puppy. But now uh, nobody really notices him. And uh, occasionally we, we take him out for a walk. And of course we feed him. We feel terribly virtuous about that because, well, frankly, nobody else really bothers about him. And do we think the dog should be terribly grateful to us? Have you ever thought about God like that? Verse 35 says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? You see, he doesn't need us, does he? Why not? Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, God is the source and the sustainer. He's the goal of everything. Absolutely nothing would exist without him. And if you think about it, every breath that we take, including the next breath you take, is by divine permission. The universe that God created and sustains moment by moment, my dear friends, it's not a stage for us to strut about on, enjoying the applause of the people for all the marvellous things we do. No, it is a stage for his glory that we might bow down and worship him. And we might say, God, well, I don't always understand you, but you are far, far, far greater than I am. And therefore, I worship and I adore you. Now, friends, these are deep truths. We can spend the rest of our life thinking about them and not plumb their depths. But what I want to say this morning is that these truths must never simply stay in our heads. You know, that is the danger, I think, of complicated teaching, like the teaching in Romans chapters 9 to 11. There are people who enjoy complicated teaching, and of course we can have lots of fun arguing about the details and debating the meaning of the details, but friends, it's not meant to be the cause of speculation or showing off to one another how terribly clever we are. It's meant to move us to adoration and worship. It's meant to change our hearts at every point. So how should our attitudes be changed by our passage this morning? Take that first point, the conclusion of God's plan that all Israel will be saved. Now, my dear friends, that ought to change our attitude to Israel. We ought to have an attitude of loving concern and it should be reflected in a deep longing that Jewish people will come to know the Lord Jesus. Yes, we ought to have a concern for all nations, um, that all nations come to know him. 
But you remember right back in the beginning that Paul says that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And in this letter, of course, I know that Paul is urging the church in Rome to support him as he takes the gospel to Spain. So the Gentile mission is important, but don't forget the Jews. God is absolutely committed to that tree he originally planted. And I find myself convicted by that and asking myself, do I actually pray for Jewish people as I should? And what about us as a church? Do do we share God's longing for the Jews that they might be saved? Second, what about the goal of God's plan that all might receive mercy. Can I say that should change our attitude to ourselves? It should lead to a deep humility. As a Christian, I can't strut around as if I deserve God's favour on merit. We're all in the same boat, disobedient, under judgment. But amazingly, God has taken us into his family which we had no right to expect and which we certainly don't deserve. That's true for Gentiles because we've been grafted in from outside but it's also true for Jewish people because they've been cut off and they can be grafted in again but only by mercy. And all of us, all of us ought to bow down before Almighty God saying, I don't deserve this at all. Friends, let us never, never take God's mercy for granted. And then finally, the response to God's plan, because all the glory should go to God. Our attitude ought always to be one of adoration and worship. Even when we don't understand him, So instead of saying, you know, I don't understand this, therefore it can't be true, I need to recognise that my tiny mind is absolutely nothing compared to God, compared to his greatness. And so I should fall down on my knees and long to see God known and worshipped and adored by all nations. And that should start in your life and mine this morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, we are so sorry for our pride and the times when we presumed on your love and mercy. And yet we know we don't deserve it at all. So we thank you for your sovereign plan that nothing can go wrong. That you are absolutely committed to following it through. Thank you that that includes those of us who've already come to know you for ourselves. And we pray that we would live in the light of your amazing plan with a passionate concern to see everybody we know, both Jew and Gentile, Come to the Lord Jesus and enjoy his mercy. And we ask it for the honour 
and the glory of your holy name.